um, making you know genome-wide association data available uh, has made it extremely easy to carry out Mendelian randomization analyses. Mendelian randomization. It's a technique that uses the chance distribution of genes in a population, combined with big data sets, to investigate causative relationships. In the BMJ alone, we've published studies on whether obesity affects smoking behaviour, it does, whether education affects myopia, it does, education in Alzheimer's, it's protective, drinking and heart disease and vitamin D and cancer and so on and so forth. But there are a lot of questions we in the BMJ have about how the technique works. The association between genes and apparently non-biologically mediated behaviours. How much the strict rule of not claiming causation based on observational data has actually been overturned. And general confusion about how the non-methodologist amongst us can actually read these studies. So we've got three of the researchers who've been carrying out Mendelian randomization studies and who have happened to have published these in the BMJ to write a spotter's guide to Mendelian randomization, just published on bmj.com. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor, and I talked to those authors to try and tease some more out. They are Neil Davies, George Davies-Smith and Michael Holmes. George Davies-Smith is Professor of Clinical Epidemiology at the Medical Research Council Integrative Epidemiology Unit at the University of Bristol. His name's been synonymous with Mendelian randomization since it was first pioneered at the turn of the millennium. George, we're seeing a lot of Mendelian randomization in the journal or elsewhere, um, but its rise has been kind of recent and very swift. So could you give me a brief potted history of the technique? Where did it come from? Yeah, so I think the notion that you know genetics can actually tell you about cause for non-genetic factors, so that you know genetics can inform about things that you can intervene uh, on, has existed for a long, a long time. Um, but in, in terms of uh, human studies, there was just simply not really the data around that would uh, let you use actually directly genotyped data uh, to inform you about, uh, about, about such causality. So, uh, so in, in reality, the, uh, as you say, you're recently seeing the uh, studies uh, appearing in the BMJ. There was a sort of there's been a huge takeoff of Mendelian randomization studies uh, over the last uh, eight to ten years because genome-wide association studies have have produced tens of thousands of reliable associations between genetic variants, everything from um, you know, lipid levels, cholesterol levels, to many other biomarkers and circulating proteins through behaviours like alcohol drinking and um, smoke, cigarette smoking and uh, caffeine consumption, and then through to uh, processes like educational attainment. So, so, the, so the genetic variants being strongly related to, or reliably related um, to those factors, means that the studies can now be applied uh, to a much greater degree. Michael Holmes is Senior Clinical Research Fellow at the University of Oxford, and he's been carrying out research with the China Kaduri Biobank to investigate causal risk factors underpinning cardiovascular disease and cancer. 
Michael, we're seeing a lot of research being published. Um, but what impact is this actually having? You know, what, what do we know now that we didn't before? Yeah, I would say that Mendelian mutation had, has had a large impact or a considerable impact on our understanding of the, the causes of disease and also for providing genetic support for multiple drug targets in, in, in the treatment of disease. And another example would be um, alcohol and heart disease. So we've had decades of observational data um, which consistently show that moderate consumption of alcohol um, is associated with a lower risk of heart disease. And the question has always been, is that due to cause and effect or is it due to confounding? And there's multiple reasons for what, why, why that association could be confounded. And um, a couple of years ago in the BMJ, um, uh, we published a study um, using genetic variants that are linked to how alcohol is metabolized by the body. And we could show that in contrast to being protective, um, in actual fact, consumption of alcohol was linked to a higher risk of coronary heart disease. And that's the kind of study which um, you could answer in a clinical trial. Actually, we probably could answer in a clinical trial. In fact, the US and the US had just abandoned a large clinical trial, um, um, partly because of, of issues they had with, with funding by alcohol industry, but also on, on a more sort of strategic um, perspective, it would be really challenging to do uh, a large-scale randomized clinical trial where you look at um, people who consume more versus less alcohol to see whether there's a link to to um, to alcohol uh, to heart disease risk. So, so that's an interesting point because I suppose this allows you to take advantage of, I don't know, maybe a, a kind of natural experiment that would allow you to study something that would be perhaps unethical to look at in an RCT. Yes, precisely. So another example is um, another study which we published recently on on education and heart disease, and we found that people that were that had genetic variants that um, that meant they were exposed to a longer duration of of education. Um, those individuals had a lower risk of heart disease. Now, that wouldn't be probably unethical to do, but it would be really challenging to do because you then have to because obviously we are exposed to education in our in our youth, and we develop heart disease in our fifties um, and sixties typically. So. That would be a study where there'd be a really long sort of incubation period, if that's the right word, for exposure or, or sort of randomization to exposure and, and um, onset of disease. Michael mentioned that education and myopia research, recently published on bmj.com. And that was the article that caused me the most consternation. Because though there's going to be a biological component to intelligence, obviously, it seems to me that something like educational attainment, particularly when you're looking at something like tertiary education, is going to be incredibly confounded by circumstance. So how can that be used as a genetic marker? George, what you said there captures a lot of people's confusion here. How can it be that something like education or smoking can actually be genetically mediated? I think it's that gap between, between a gene and a behaviour that, that's causing confusion. Yes, so for smoking, for example, the most strongly related single genetic variant is in a nicotine receptor. So perhaps it's not that mysterious that smoking behaviour relates to uh, how you respond to smoking. And similarly for uh, caffeine consumption, the genetic variants, the top strongest genetic variants are ones related to the metabolism uh, of, uh, of caffeine. But when it comes to something like education, I mean, you can see a genetic link to intelligence, yes. 
But when it comes to education, you know, there's so much more that's going on there. It's kind of abstracted even further. How do you actually look at that? Well, just as for LDL cholesterol, we've had very large genome-wide association studies that have identified variants that associate with LDL cholesterol. We've had enormous genome-wide association studies that have identified specific variants that associate with education. That's Neil Davies, a statistical epidemiologist who works with George Davies Smith in Bristol. The most recent of these involved a million people and identified a thousand different points, over a thousand different points across the genome that associate with education. And these variants, again, are biologically expressed and have effects within the body. For example, they um, are highly expressed in the brain and we know they affect cognition. But ultimately, we, we know that they affect individuals' behaviour and their likelihood to remain in school. So in a similar way that you've got LDL cholesterol variants that affect your um, LDL uh, cholesterol and then ultimately lead you to develop atherosclerosis Mm -hmm. and then develop the final outcome of heart disease. For the example of education, we've got variants that affect cognition that lead you to remain in school for longer that ultimately affect how likely you are to develop um, myopia and short-sightedness. So it's actually quite a similar process and quite a similar um, analogy between the two cases. As you move away from proteins, so obviously genes encode proteins. Um, as you move away from proteins to more complex phenotypes, and then when you get to things like education, I think it becomes sort of fuzzier to understand what is the me- mechanism by which these genetic variants are, are altering the phenotypes. Um, and I guess the, the point is, as long as there's not a, a bias or there's not a sort of a, a massive pleiotropic effect, which is which is going to then um, um, impact on the the estimates which we de- derive and therefore potentially um, invalidate your results. Um, and we can test for those with some of the methodologies which I'm sure Neil and um, George mentioned. Um, we can test for those. And, and if those if those tests show that there isn't that that pleiotropy isn't present, then in the um, then it suggests that the Mendelian randomization effect or association is valid. And then the other thing you can do is sort of triangulate that that MR estimate to other data like observational data. And if it all sort of if all these sort of independent um, approaches to examining a question sort of converge onto a single unifying answer, then that's pretty compelling for that being a true a true cause and effect relationship. Because it'd be so unlikely that you'd have different sources of bias from different study designs that would all align to give you the same effect. So that particular example of education of coronary heart disease, if you look at one of the figures in the manuscript, you, you can see the observational effect is almost identical to the to the Mendelian randomization effect, and, and those are different study designs, different individuals, um, and therefore, it's, I think on the balance of evidence, that points towards that being a true cause and effect relationship. So if the totality of the evidence agrees, then perhaps that association that might seem confusing or counterintuitive is actually borne out. Now, the other thing that I wonder, and this is maybe more of a gut reaction, is that Mendelian randomization just seems like cheating somehow. It's been hammered into me that observational data can't be used to draw causal inferences. And yet, here's this new technique that allows researchers to do just that. Pull data from large databases and say, here's the direction of association. People say that, you know, Mendelian randomization is, well, some people call it observational. I would say this is, I would say it's a genetic 
analysis and, and because of the because of the nature in which we inherit our DNA from our parents and the randomization that, that that is involved in it. When you look across the population, um, um, when you group individuals by their genotype in the population, they they should be um, they should be similar for 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 biomarkers that that genetic variant doesn't modify, um, which is akin to a, a randomized um, trial design where the where the two groups are similar in all respects, apart from the fact that one group has, say, a drug that say lowers LDL cholesterol, and the other group has a placebo. So, in that regard, we break confounding, and by breaking confounding, um, we can then um, make these causal deductions, and that's what elevates Mendelian randomization to the to to this, a similar standing as a clinical trial. Obviously, it's not a clinical trial, and and people will say, well, you're not going to use this data to 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 change public health or to um, as a basis for for prescribing drugs, people would typically want to see the clinical trial results as well. But what it does is it allows us to prioritise, um, for example, which biomarkers we do take forward into phase three clinical trials, uh, and sort of mothball those that are, are less likely to be successful. Thanks, Michael. Um, I suppose this is a good time. Could you give me an explanation of how this technique actually works? Sure. So Mendelian randomization is the process by which we use genetic data to make causal inference. So owing to Mendel's second law, um, there is there is um, random assortment of alleles at um, at conception, and what that means is that if you group individuals in the population by their genotype, um, say for example you take a genetic variant that lowers LDL cholesterol, if you group individuals in the population by that particular LDL cholesterol lowering um, variant, they sh- individuals should be similar in all respects. So similar, um, similar age, sex, smoking status, physical activity, other biomarkers. They should be similar in those respects, apart from the fact that one group has lower LDL cholesterol and the other group has um, normal or higher LDL cholesterol. And that gives you the analogy to the clinical trial um, because those individuals that have the, the genetic variants that low LDL, LDL cholesterol, you can use that to make causal deductions on LDL that is not confounded by by other factors. Um, the other thing about Mendelian randomization is that because genetic variants are not modifiable, you don't get the issue of, of reverse causality. So if you do a prospective study and you an observational study and you look at, say, the relationship of C-reactive protein and coronary heart disease. You might measure individual C-reactive protein levels at baseline and follow up individuals for many years and then see that people who had higher CRP had a higher risk of incident coronary heart disease. And that might lead you to the conclusion that it looks like C-reactive protein causes heart disease. But the problem is that heart disease has a long period of time where um, the, the disease is, is accumulating, but there are no symptoms. That's so-called subclinical heart disease. And that's, for example, where you have um, um, atherosclerosis developing in your in your coronary arteries. Now, during that sort of long um, subclinical period, you, um, the disease process can, for example, um, lead to release of biomarkers, um, which would then give you a higher level of C-reactive protein in the blood. So this is the so-called reverse causality. Um, but because, coming back to Mendelian randomization, um, the genetic variants are not modifiable. Um, therefore, you can use 
genetic variants to make causal deductions on biomarkers that are not affected by reverse causality. So in that way, the Mendelian randomization um, should, if it's done well, should get rid of confounding, and, but it almost certainly gets rid of reverse causality. And confounding and reverse causality are the main concerns of traditional observational epidemiology. And by, by dealing with these main concerns, we can um, conduct studies which give us evidence on cause and effect that are protected from these major sources of potential error. There was a key phrase in Michael's explanation there, if it's done well. And the basis from which all Mendelian randomization studies flow is from a genetic link, as identified by a genome-wide association study. Neil, obviously um, associations have different strengths. How important is the strength of that initial genetic association to the causal association drive from from a Mendelian randomization study? It's absolutely critical. So... The first step in a Mendelian randomization analysis is to select your variants. And typically we select the variants that are very strongly associated with the with education at genome-wide levels of significance. So this corrects for the fact that we're doing um, up to, say, 10 million statistical tests across the genome and uses a p-value threshold of 5 times 10 to the minus 8, which is incredibly stringent. Um, so this means that we can identify variants very precisely. But within this, the genetic variants that we're using in these studies have different sizes of effects. And this is really useful because it gives you um, some variation in your data that you can explore and compare to the effects that they have on your outcome. And if, you're, if your model, your causal model is correct, then you would expect genetic variants that have a bigger effect on education to also have a bigger effect on your outcome, in this case, myopia. There can be, at any one gene locus, a large variation, a whole range of potential changes that will affect the functioning of the protein that that gene encodes. So when it comes to that gene as a candidate for Mendelian randomization, how do you sort of, how does that variation affect it? So you're absolutely right. Within a single area of the genome, there'll be a lot of genetic variants that associate with um, your exposure of interest. Um, so we typically go through and select individual variants which are independent of the um, variants around them. So if you've got 10 or 20 variants that all associate with the trait all in the same region, you just want to pick out one of them as your um, as a variant that you'll use in your study rather than using all 20, because you end up um, double-counting the variation, because they're essentially representing the same biological signal. But typically, um, genome-wide association studies, as part of reporting their results, they uh, very carefully go through and um, try and determine which variants are representing independent signals of association. So when they're talking about the 160 variants that they used or the... um, or the 96 uh, BMI variants. These are really talking about independent variation. So within any area of the genome, you just picked out essentially the strongest signal. And uh, that leads me on to the question about the databases that you use, because obviously some variations are much more prevalent in one population than another. Um, and George, I think you mentioned at the beginning yes, how different biobanks are sampling different populations. 
So is that something you have to consider when you're actually designing one of these studies? So, so there being biobanks from different places, uh, you know, different uh, populations is important because some genetic variation, as I mentioned, exists in, you know, in some populations but not others. So, for example, the uh, uh, ALDH2 genetic variant related to alcohol consumption has, has essentially zero percent prevalence in European origin populations, but, you know, 20, 30 percent prevalence in East Asian populations. So there's, 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 there's um, considerable value in having uh, studies in, in different uh, situations. And is that something we're actually seeing, studies done across different biobanks? Oh, yes. Yeah. People are, are often... Uh, so you see papers appearing which will combine uh, analyses done on publicly available genome-wide association study consortia data and UK Biobank, for example. That's uh, you know people people go out and use the available data that are that, that they can, and 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 the combination of data uh, allowing sort of replication in different situations and uh, different contexts is uh, powerful. You know, adds powerfully to the uh, to the stories. As I said at the beginning, and this has been alluded to throughout this conversation, there's been an explosion in the rate of publication of these Mendelian randomizations, much in the same way as we've seen an explosion in observational studies off the back of large databases. That's led to us being more aware of issues around association trolling, just running the number until a positive p-value pops out and pretending that that's not a statistical artifact. So does that issue exist for Mendelian randomization too? Yes, yeah, so, so two answers to that. So with respect to Mendelian randomization studies, um, making you know, genome-wide association data available uh, has made it extremely easy to carry out Mendelian randomization analyses because, I mean, you could, you, because their programs are available like MR-based that allow you to interrogate the data. You don't even have to go and uh, try and get access to the data yourself. Access is through that. You know, you literally can run in 15 minutes. You can, you know, run an analysis of um, LDL cholesterol on every outcome you know, you, you want uh, that's available uh, in those databases. So that um, that does allow for you know poorly done, not not well not well uh, interrogated uh, investigations to appear, and that is certainly the case. There's you know cases where I've seen. Uh, uh, three papers appear literally on the same day with uh, you know with a common author who's you know where the, ha- the handle has been cranked and three papers have been turned out. Now, there's, there's, there's the the upside to that is that because the data are publicly available, it means that anyone can sort of check the analysis and see um, whether uh, you know whether all appropriate sensitivity analyses have been done. Uh, get their own handle on whether interpretation is correct. Also, see whether basic mistakes have been made. So, um, two studies appeared uh, at a, at close together in time uh, on uh, a protein called C-reactive protein and its association or its, uh, with schizophrenia, coming to exactly opposite conclusions. But because the data were available, we could demonstrate really quickly that one of those studies just made some very basic errors. Uh, and that study, which was published in Scientific Reports, has been retracted by the journal because we could demonstrate that that, that such mistakes have been made. So I would say that the, the main concern is in the methodology and in, in the interpretation. Um, so, for example, 
um, if you if you use a, if you use a genetic variant that is associated with multiple different um, biomarkers, and you use and those biomarkers are are on separate pathways, and you use that genetic variant to try and tease apart the causal effect of one of those biomarkers, then um, then you can really run into troubles because you might um, ascribe causality to that biomarker when actual when in actual fact it's a different biomarker that that, that, that the genetic variant is modifying. So a classic example of this would be using genetic variants in the Apple E gene, which we you know has has wide widely pleiotropic effects, and using that to um, work out whether a protein called C-reactive protein is is causally implicated in coronary heart disease. Um, so we, we know from from um, from large scale genetic genetic studies that C-reactive protein is unlikely to cause coronary heart disease, but because the ApoE um, because SNPs in the ApoE gene are linked to other biomarkers such as LDL cholesterol, which does cause heart disease, um, using ApoE to investigate whether C-reactive protein is causal or not would give you the wrong answer. So that, that's one example. So using a genetic variant that is pleiotropic. Um, another sort of problematic example is where you, um, if you have a, an enzyme that, multi, that modifies multiple, um, that metabolizes multiple biomarkers, and if you use the genetic variant that modifies, say, or, or regulates the function of that enzyme, and you use that to try and tease, tease apart the causal role of those multiple metabolites, then you would then get the wrong answer, or you could then get the wrong answer because you'd be assuming that each of those metabolites is equally responsible for disease, when natural factor might be one or none of them. So it's, um, there are sort of these methodological challenges which, which can, can affect um, the interpretation of, of Mendelian ionization and potentially ascribe causality in the wrong way. And, and, and another example would be um, um, smoking. So there's, there's been a couple of studies recently suggesting that people that smoke um, might have a lower risk of Alzheimer's disease and a lower risk of osteoarthritis. But the concern here is that if you have a genetic variant that makes you smoke more, um, um, then by the nature of that, you're likely to die at a younger age. And because you die at a younger age, you then don't go on to develop Alzheimer's or osteoarthritis because those are those are age um, those are age related diseases. Um, so one you could say, oh, here's a genetic so here's a here's a study which suggests that um, if I smoke more, uh, I'm going to have a lower risk of Alzheimer's or or, um, or osteoarthritis. But and and you you might think that's cause and effect, but actually it's it's purely survival bias um, which is which is driving that association. So there are sort of these nuggets of um, of um, nuance when when conducting and applying um, Mendelian randomization studies, um, which we need to be careful about, um, because we can lead to either the wrong conclusion and, and that could potentially lead to harm if someone was to then then take up smoking because they wanted to lower their risk of Alzheimer's or, or osteoarthritis. This podcast was prompted by a research method and reporting paper that gives a spotter's guide to Mendelian randomization how non-methodologists can read them, and some tips for what to look out for. Neil Davis gave us a quick rundown. So the key things that we're looking out for are how are the genetic variants chosen? 
was the genome-wide association study that detected these variants large and robust, or were they just chosen on an ad hoc basis with only a very weak association with a, the exposure of interest? Um, next, we would want to check the analysis. Have they gone through and carefully explained where they got their data from? Have they used an integrative package like MRBase, or have they gone through and done the analysis by hand themselves? And if they have, have they reported enough detail about all of the steps that they took to ensure that the genetic relationships that they're analyzing have been um, compiled and added together in the right way? Have they provided st statistical code to allow you to see how they processed and cleaned their data? And then moving on to interpreting the results, when you're looking at a Mendelian randomization estimate, it's in a lot of ways, similar to any other result that you see in the medical literature. So we shouldn't be overemphasizing p-values. We need to carefully interpret the confidence intervals around those estimates to see if there's differences in the hypothesis test, for example, if the Mendelian randomization estimate isn't statistically significant. Is that because the study just didn't have enough power, or is it because they're able to exclude the observational estimate of the association of the exposure and the outcome. So is it a true null finding or is it just an indication of lack of power? Um, so those are some of the things that you can look out for when um, reading papers. And as part of the um, research methods paper that we're publishing with the BMJ, we provided a checklist that allows readers to go through and um, interrogate the papers that they're reading that will hopefully get them um, up to um, understanding and being able to critique Mendelian randomization papers in exactly the same way as they would a randomized trial. Because there's no um, magic in a Mendelian randomization analysis. It can be a very good analysis, a very poor analysis, just as you can have very good and convincing trials and very poor trials. And our overall objective with this paper was to really provide people with the um, understanding to be able to do that for Mendelian randomization analyses so that they can interpret them for themselves and evaluate whether the evidence that's being presented and the arguments that are being presented are convincing. So hopefully that's helped you understand what Mendelian randomization is, how it does its trick of turning data sets into causative links, how genes can link to behavioural traits, and how to watch out for papers which might not be all they seem. The technique of Mendelian randomization is fairly new and is being applied in more and more situations. And I'll leave the last word to Michael Holmes about where he thinks the next big breakthrough might come. Sure. So I guess the, 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 Mende the Mendelian randomization for drug targets would be the, the nice example here that, that, that springs to mind. So there's been a lot of emphasis on precision medicine, i.e. can we give the right drug to the right person to maximise the benefit and minimise the harm? And there's been a lot of concern as to whether this is a, re a, a realizable, um, whether, whether we can actually deliver on this. Um, and so with the advent of these large biobanks, the UK Biobank, the China Kuduri Biobank, the Millions of Veterans, Millions of Veterans Program, I think that there are, there'll be really massive opportunities in the future to leverage, leverage these large data sets together and to, rather than doing a, a sort of drug target mentally randomization study using all, all individuals, because classically, 
uh, we had to do that in order to get sufficient power to derive a meaningful conclusion, we can start to investigate subpopulations and see, okay, so if I now look at individuals that have the genetic variant that, for example, um, approximate statin therapy, and I apply that, that to apply that genetic instrument to this particular subgroup, are they likely to derive, derive more benefit? Are they likely to derive um, less potential so diabetes, as an, as an example of um, of sort of an adverse effect that you might be able to to mitigate? So, so using using um, Mendelian randomization as a, as an aim to um, as an approach to um, precision medicine in these large data sets might be one way in which we we start, we start to. And reap the, the, the rewards or the benefits of these of these massive data sets that are emerging. You've been listening to George Davy Smith, Neil Davies, and Michael Holmes explain Mendelian randomizations. And there are Amar reading Mendelian randomization studies, a guide, glossary, and checklist for clinicians is now available on bmj.com. That's all for this podcast. We'll be back soon talking about patient information leaflets, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You'll find that on our podcast feed, which comes to you through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you've got this far and haven't yet, then please consider subscribing. You can also find our full back catalogue on bmj.com slash podcasts. Hundreds of episodes, all available for free. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.